Hi, I'm Sopan Deb, and this is Storybound. Welcome to Storybound, presented by LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. In just one minute, you'll hear Sopan Deb read an excerpt from his book, Missed Translations, with an original score by Jordan Holloman. He recorded Sopan right before the quarantine set in, and we're excited to finally share his story. Make sure you stick around until after the credits to hear something special. In 2007, my freshman year of college, Shamal came to visit me in Boston at the beginning of my spring semester. I don't remember much of the visit, other than that he bought me lunch at my favorite Thai restaurant on campus, Noodle Street, before taking me to a local grocery store for some supplies. I didn't realize at the time that this would be the last time I would see him for 11 years. I might have given him a better goodbye if I had. The next month, I noticed that I had not heard from him for at least a couple of weeks, My father used to call every Sunday like clockwork, so I called him. Usually, if my father saw a missed call from me, he would immediately call me back, but he didn't. So I called again and left a voicemail. Please leave your message. If my father saw two missed calls and a voicemail from me, he would fly to Boston to make sure I was okay. It's true that we weren't close, but he desperately wanted to be. And as I grew older, he tried in his own awkward way to bond with me. Shamal still didn't call me back. At this point, I was worried. He was an older man living by himself as an immigrant in a country that had not worked out for him. Spring break was coming up, and I decided that I would knock on his door when I got home. Right before the break, I get an email from him. He told me that he was sick and that he was no longer in New Jersey. I immediately responded, where are you? Are you in a hospital in New York? I'll come visit you. I was startled by his response. I'm in India. Shamal didn't know when he'd be back. I had never even been to India. He said he was too ill to live in New Jersey on his own and that he had left for medical treatment. He never came back. Throughout the next decade, I never found out where exactly he was living. Isn't that bizarre? My father moved to another country without telling anybody, and I wasn't phased. It was one step from a parental ghosting. I would have asked more questions after a mediocre online dating attempt. Perhaps my reticence was born of the same guilt I felt about the situation with my mother. I've always had this nagging feeling that I didn't do right by Shamal, that I wasn't a good enough son to him and didn't give us a chance to work on our relationship. I didn't want to know why he was too sick to stay in the country, because I was sure I partially caused it. I always had this thought in the back of my head that maybe If I had taken the time to engage with him in a meaningful way, instead of looking at myself as the aggrieved child of immigrant parents who didn't get him, he would have felt comfortable communicating about his need to leave. Knowing less about my father's situation allowed me to remain blissfully ignorant of the role I played in his decision to do so. As the years passed and my father would call from India, our conversations grew more irregular. He'd never learn anything about me and I'd never learn anything about him. The calls just let me know that he was still alive. Sometimes he'd ask if we could video chat. I always found some reason not to. Seeing his face would make it too real. 
outside baggage claim in Kolkata, the time to avoid seeing his face was quickly running out. Days before, he had emailed us a picture of himself, since he knew I might not remember what he looked like. Of course, the picture he sent featured him wearing sunglasses, a Bart Simpson t-shirt with cut-off sleeves, and a baseball cap, which is the exact picture you send someone when you don't want to be recognized. I called my father. Yeah, we're on the sidewalk, I said. I turned to Wesley and put on a brave face. It's not that hot here. Not right now, anyway. I think he was waiting, I said, and suddenly stopped in my tracks. Wesley spotted a man striding confidently at the arrival doors on a mission, like the brown Kool-Aid man. Oh my God, I think that's him, I said. It was an unexpected, remarkable sight. When I last saw him at Noodle Street, I remember thinking how unhealthy he looked. Now in India, 11 years later, he looked tanned, rested, and spirited, with almost as much hair as I have. He wore a white dress shirt with black pants, and he sported a fresh haircut. That he still had hair to cut was a surprise to me, one of many I'd find out. His muscles had tone. He didn't have a dad bod, it was just a bod. He had the kind of glowing, confident tan of someone who had strolled onto a golf course smoking a Cohiba and blasted an 80 blindfolded. He was earnest and genuinely excited. Welcome to India, he said to both of us. Said is an understatement. It was more like a roar. Everything out of his mouth was a yell. Welcome to India! He joyfully handed Wesley a dozen or so miniature roses, their stems carefully wrapped in aluminum foil to keep them fresh. I got a pat on the head. Wow, you're a grown-up man now. I almost did not recognize you. It's been many years, Dad. I was waiting there watching every door. How could you come out? I'm waiting there like a security guard. A couple of tailors are here. One for you, one for her. You know we're not the ones getting married, right? I answered. I don't know anything about you. Come on. Wesley and I piled our bags into the trunk of the car and climbed into the back seat, while Shamal occupied the front. And it began, our first car ride in India, which was really great training for a zero-gravity spacewalk should life ever come to that. There are no driving rules in India, at least none that I could see. Our driver routinely swerved and cut off cars or was on the receiving end of similar chaos. In New Jersey, this could get you killed. In Kolkata, which is located in the eastern part of the country near the border with Bangladesh, it was just a Wednesday. Every few seconds, the driver honked. It wasn't out of rage. All the other drivers honked too. It was a way of self-policing on the road. Honk or get bonked. We tried to converse in the car, which was an exercise in futility. My tennis court is just beside your hotel, my dad yelled. You still play tennis? Of course. Today I played, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday plus golf twice a month. Cutting through all the Kolkata noise, I was relieved to hear he wasn't the slowly dying man I knew all those years ago, much to my surprise. And as I found out during the cab ride, he had other interests too. Constant activity doesn't leave time for the mind to wander. The conversation turned to Wesley, who upon interrogation told my father she had recently graduated from law school at Harvard. Schmal lowered his voice a bit. Very good, very good. I am very proud of you. I have taken two courses at MIT and Harvard. Really? I cut in. Of course! Have you not seen my resume? You know, I have not seen your resume. Not recently. My dad was a very good lawyer. Your grandfather, a famous criminal lawyer. He never lost a case. We were 20 minutes into the ride. It was the most substantive conversation my father and I had ever shared. 
In that moment, it hit me that I had never really thought about my grandparents. Then came this exchange. Sopan, could you recognize me? Have I changed a lot? I did recognize you, but it was much different than I expected. What did you expect? I don't know. You seem like you're living your best life right now. Really? My heart has been vibrating for the last four months. How can I see my long lost son? Honestly, I don't know what I was expecting. I'm happy to see you're so active, I said. You look much different than when I last saw you. He paused for a split second. You've put on weight. Thank you. My father and I were dipping our toes in. We circled each other, a bit cautiously at first, like professional wrestlers before they lock horns. The last time we had an in-person conversation, I was adjusting to life as a freshman in college and being on my own for the first time. Aside from doing well in class, I was singularly focused on fitting in on campus, a daunting task for someone who had always felt like an outsider. I was unsure of myself. I cared a lot about what other people thought. In high school, people my age were still wearing those puka shell surfer necklaces that seemed really stylish. I was so thirsty for acceptance that I'd ask other students if I could wear theirs for a couple of hours, just so people thought I had my own. It never occurred to me to just buy one. College was my chance to walk into frat parties and seem cool. I was in the midst of a search for the biggest, coolest friend group in Massachusetts. More than a decade later, I was more mature and centered, comfortable with my path in life. The version of myself that Shamal was seeing had room for him that wasn't there when I was 18. How did you like Dubai? My dad asked, no, yelled, about the city in which we'd had a one-night layover the night before. Dubai was wonderful, I answered. Yes, Dubai is one of the leading developing cities in the world. A lot of wealth is over there. Have you been there recently? I asked. Not recently, a long time back. Small talk about geopolitics. Very good, I thought. Wesley told him we were more excited about India than Dubai, to which my father responded with a hearty laugh. I should take a second and describe that laugh. I have a terrible chuckle that often runs on a two-second delay. It's the kind that embarrasses friends at parties, which probably helps explain why I was rarely invited to any in college. But my father's? Imagine Santa Claus yelling, ho, 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 but in a high-pitched staccato and through a loudspeaker. When Shamal finds something funny, it's best to board up surrounding windows. It's actually not too dissimilar from Bishaka's laugh, just in a higher register. We shall show you India very well. Did you have a little bit of studies about India, the Mughals and all that? Shamal asked, foreshadowing an amusing motif of our Indian education. A little bit. Honestly, we wanted to learn as much as we could on this trip. We were both getting a bit more comfortable. My heart was beating at a more normal pace, and I let my shoulders hunch a bit. Shmal lowered his voice. How about music? Are you practicing music at all? He remembered. My parents, against my wishes, had made me take classical piano lessons starting when I was six. I hated it. I hated practicing Beethoven. I hated how exact you had to be. If Mozart wanted something quick in the section, sorry, Allegro, it had to be quick. You didn't color outside the lines. Eventually, after about eight years, I stopped going to lessons and started picking up jazz on my own. I love the concept of improvisation. I was one of the better piano players for my age until high school, but I didn't practice enough and never improved. Even though I auditioned for the Berklee College of Music, I was never skilled enough to do it full time. I was, however, good enough to be in several cover bands throughout my life, including one called the Streetlight Band. When my mother and father took me to my lessons, 
I doubt they envisioned my abilities peaking with the cover of Brian Adams's Summer of 69 at Edgar's Pub on the Jersey Shore. Shamal was a musician himself, as he reminded me, an accordion player. He was a less cool version of Weird Al. I have flashes of memories from him playing when I was a child, but it was the same three songs over and over again. One of them was Edelweiss from The Sound of Music. I've got a very beautiful piano for you, Shamal said at a busy intersection. I've been playing it for the last eight years. I got it tuned. The tuning changes every three or four months because of the change of climate, but my piano is in very good shape. I've been waiting hours for you to come and play. I'll take pictures. In my mind, I quickly ran through the visuals of my father videotaping me at this highly anticipated piano summit, in which I'm yelling, I got my first real six string, bought it at the five and dime, or some other bar band classic. The driver lurched back and forth with no warning. The high-pitched car honks complemented by Shamal's energetic squeals. I'd never done cocaine, but boy, did it feel like it might have been the boost I needed to keep up. This is Kolkata. Did you know six people got the Nobel Prize from this city? He said. My father has a verbal tick, which was exhibited many times throughout the trip. When he wanted to teach us something, he would elongate the word or subject he was trying to teach us about. So Kolkata became Kolkata. Mughals became Mughals. Shamal rambled on about the writings of Rabindranath Tagore, the legendary poet, essayist, and writer who won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1913, the first Asian to do so. Tagore's work was formative during my father's childhood, or so he said. Beverly Cleary was during mine, but I didn't feel like explaining Ramona Quimby to him. Wesley and I are both excited about the food, I told Shamal. We were. I never rejected this side of my brownness. I have always loved Indian food as does Wesley. My plan is to give you all home-cooked foods. My cook is very good. Yesterday, I bought special fresh fish for you. Various types of fishes. You cannot get this fish in America. Brand new good fish. We'll take care of you. I've got Indian white wine, red wine, and Indian beer, Shamal said. I had never had a drink with him before. Now we're talking, I answered. It surprised me to learn that he had his own cook, though we soon realized that this is very common in India. When we were initially hammering out the details of the trip, Shmuel asked us to bring a gift for a woman who stayed with him. I'd quietly wondered if he had remarried without mentioning it. He hadn't. It turned out that Shmuel was referring to his cook, Suparna. Part of the reason I resented my father when I was young was that I didn't feel like I had one. There was a cultural gap between us. His upbringing in India had never yielded to American assimilation, as well as a generational one. Shmuel is almost 50 years older than me. In high school, I had a friend named Paul who lived down the street. His father, Stan, played the guitar and taught Paul, who was my age, how to play. They were in a classic rock band together, which performed covers of the Beatles, Billy Joel, and Fleetwood Mac, music that I loved. In high school, Stan invited me to be part of the band as the new keyboardist. This was the Streetlight Band. I felt more of a connection to Stan than I did my own dad. There was no way to talk to Shamal about how Rumors was one of the best albums ever made. He didn't know what Rumors, Fleetwood Mac, or actual rumors were. What fatherhood meant in his mind and my desire for what I believe to be the quintessential American experience my white friends had were two vastly different things. To Shamal, being a father was a black and white equation about putting forth the hard work through whatever means necessary so that the family could survive. In America, in theory, it should have been easier to do that. That's why he immigrated here. I never saw it that way. As a kid in a New Jersey suburb, life wasn't just about survival. It was a kind of privilege I never realized I had. 
I wanted our relationship to be about playing catch or riding bikes together. I wanted Shamal to know my friends and teach me how to shave. I wanted someone to talk to about girls and tell me where babies came from. That was America, I thought, especially considering the experience my white childhood friends were having. Where I wanted less from my mother in many ways, less pressure, less interference, I badly wanted more from Shamal. The cultural gap was widened further by my father's pride in being an immigrant. I saw his pride as a burden, especially in middle school and high school, where feeling like an outsider was a constant. Hardly anyone in class looked like me. If they did, I bet I would have spent more time with other parents similar to Shamal, and my assumptions about race and parenting would have been different. These feelings, especially the ones I had equating whiteness with being American, weren't justified or rational. With the benefit of time, I can say they were wrong. The truth is that I'm not sure that my relationship with Shamal ever had a chance. Even if my parents had had a stable, healthy marriage, the gap between my father and me may have been insurmountable. He didn't understand what it meant to be an American child growing up in the 1990s. I didn't understand what it meant to be a child in India. Most important, I didn't understand what it meant to be a father from India to a millennial son here in the United States. He certainly made a good faith effort, but the execution was iffy and boy did I resent him for it. Year after year, my dad showed up to my Little League games without understanding the rules. I struck out early and often. One time, I swear I saw him standing up and cheering for me after I struck out. I am fairly positive that he thought that's what was supposed to happen. My son doesn't have to endure the punishment of running the bases. But my career didn't make much sense to an electrical engineer from India. He knows that I'm a journalist and a writer for the New York Times, but what that means has always been something foreign to him. Bishaka understood a bit more, but not too much. Growing up, the television she approved of me watching, outside of Seventh Heaven, of course, was the news. She didn't understand what went into a broadcast, but she loved Peter Jennings, the ABC anchor. She liked 2020 and 60 Minutes. She was a news consumer in a way my father wasn't. This probably wasn't Bashaka's intent, but her appreciation for the news probably nudged me toward being a reporter. When I first started at Boston University, my goal was to become a sports broadcaster. I wanted to be the next Bob Costas and call NBA Finals games on television. I was never good at sports, so this was the next best thing. When I watched games on television, I would mute the television and broadcast the games myself. I would do the same when playing a video game, say NHL 94 on Sega Genesis. Eventually, I became a bit bored by sports and shifted to hard news. I was the sports director of the college radio station at BU and found myself disillusioned by just how regular athletes are. They sometimes want to show up late for work and act cranky. Look, Ma, they're just like us. After college, my career took several detours. Let's call them forced detours, including stops at the Boston Globe, didn't renew my contract, NBC, a layoff, Al Jazeera, a layoff, and Major League Baseball. This was fine. And then I landed the job of a lifetime in 2015. I was tapped to be a campaign reporter for CBS News. One of the candidates I was initially assigned, Donald J. Trump. My initial reaction? I won't have to cover that guy at all. You are listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break.
I was part of a small group of about five to 10 reporters that followed the Trump campaign from start to finish. We went to more than 40 states and hundreds of rallies. Trump even sent some angry tweets my way once, calling me and my friend Katie Turr, an NBC reporter, third rate and dishonest, adding that we should be fired. I'm sure he was just joking. Schmall didn't know what it meant to be a campaign embed for a national television network. Are you on television? Sometimes. So you're a cameraman? Sometimes. You write stories? Sometimes. I don't get it. I know. Covering the Trump campaign made me hyper-aware of just how brown I am, with or without family ties. No matter how American I felt as an Indian American, for some, the hyphen mattered more. The political press corps is almost entirely white, to say nothing about the demographics of Trump's rally crowds. At a rally in Las Vegas, Nevada, an older white man came up to me as I was doing an interview and yelled that I should go back to Iraq where I came from. I am, of course, not from Iraq. That gentleman meant Howell, New Jersey. Although go back to New Jersey where you came from might be the worst insult. Weeks later, the press corps was in Reno. There was a huge line outside the ballroom where Trump was slated to speak. See, that was the thing about Trump rallies. There were always long lines. He wasn't doing rallies in diners and coffee shops. He was doing them in basketball arenas. People would line up the night before to get a good seat. His supporters would show up dressed like him and holding signs. It was like Republican political Woodstock. I met Trump supporters who would travel around the country going to every rally. Trump was the political equivalent of the Allman Brothers. Every show was different, but just like the band, some songs would meander on without end. Thank you very much, everybody. I was taking pictures of the line outside of the Reno rally when another older white man, this one wearing an outfit with Vietnam patches on it, said to me, hey, what are you doing? Shooting photos for ISIS? How could someone be that brazen in public? I was furious. First, I was mad about the racism. Second, really? Crowd photos? I'm what, an intern for ISIS? Not even senior management? My goodness, systemic discrimination exists in places you don't expect. I maintained my professionalism and finished what I was doing. Afterward, I walked up to him and said, Sir, just so you know, I am not a member of ISIS. I work for CBS News. He threw his hands up as if I was attacking him and said, I don't know who you are. Be glad you're born in this country. Sir, I am. Because I have the freedom to call you an asshole in a book. You're an asshole. But my skin color never felt as hot as it did when the Trump campaign went to Chicago. Oftentimes, as a reporter chasing Trump on the trail, you couldn't help but feel like you were pursuing a carnival disguised as a presidential campaign. It was a big, shiny object. Look, there's Trump giving out Senator Lindsey Graham's phone number. This happened. Look. There's an elephant. No, a real elephant. There actually once was a real elephant outside of a Trump rally. Oh my. Trump just joked in front of thousands of people that a supporter's wife was fantasizing about him in bed. Yes, this happened. Is that someone dressed like a southern border wall? That's not even the weirdest thing I've seen today, because there's a man dressed like Colonel Sanders about 100 feet away. Both things happened. Protesters were a mainstay of Trump rallies. And by March 2016, tempers were at a fever pitch. By this time, Trump was the dominant frontrunner in the Republican Party, not just because of high polling, but because of actual wins. He had won the New Hampshire and South Carolina primaries by large margins, in addition to the Nevada caucuses. He was winning so much that, as he put it, your heads will spin. One of the big storylines floating around Trump's candidacy was the amount of violence at his rallies, which many accused Trump of encouraging. I watched hundreds, if not a couple thousand, protesters get ejected from Trump rallies over the course of being an embed. It usually went the same way. The protesters made noise, the crowd jeered, Trump yelled, get him out, 
Then he'd go on an extended riff blasting the protesters, maybe mocking them, go home to mommy, maybe encouraging supporters to physically harm them. If you see somebody getting ready to throw a tomato, knock the crap out of them. Maybe inviting peace, don't hurt them. The protesters were escorted out. The rally and the show went on. We were used to this. Trump was supposed to have a rally in Chicago on March 11, 2016. As soon as it was announced, the chatter of mass protests started making the rounds. A week earlier, Trump addressed a packed airport hangar outside New Orleans. And as he started speaking, he held up, Lion King style, a baby he had signed in Baton Rouge at an earlier rally. Just in case your ears glossed over that last sentence, he held up a baby he had autographed with an actual marker weeks before as if he was baby Simba in The Lion King. This Chicago rally was supposed to be held at the UIC Pavilion on the University of Illinois at Chicago campus. As I entered the arena hours beforehand, the intensity was already palpable. Hundreds of yelling and chanting young protesters had taken over nearly the entire back half of the arena. Perhaps out of familiarity or wishful thinking, I mentally played down the reports that there would be large-scale protests. This happens at every rally. But it was another reporter standing near me who made me reconsider. Surveying the back of the room, she remarked, some shit is going to go down tonight. I chuckled uneasily, realizing somewhere in the back of my mind that she was probably right. This was more reality than carnival. The night started off normally enough when three men wearing white t-shirts were ejected in an upper section of the arena. I jetted toured them with my camera to grab footage, just in case it got rowdy. Their t-shirts read Muslims United Against Trump on the back. And as the crowd chanted USA, each man raised one fist into the air. No violence. There was an order to these things. Like clockwork, they were escorted out under an electronic scoreboard reading, Make America Great Again. I remarked to a Slate reporter, people think it's new, but this has been going on at Trump rallies since at least November. There'll be 10 more of these tonight. The back of my mind hadn't reached the front of my lips. What I didn't realize was that hundreds of protesters had gathered outside. Cable news was running constant aerials of the crammed streets. The intensity started ramping up, both inside and outside the arena. Mr. Trump just arrived in Chicago, and after meeting with law enforcement, has determined that for the... Eventually, much to the shock of all of us, Trump canceled the rally about a half an hour before it was supposed to start, setting off pandemonium unlike anything I had ever seen. Until another day. Thank you very much for your attendance, and please go in peace. Scuffles started breaking out inside and outside, and protests were becoming violent as demonstrators clashed with police. I grabbed my camera and ran outside to gather footage for the network. Suddenly, in a split second, I felt a tug on the back of my sweatshirt. Well, it wasn't so much of a tug as it was an aggressive backward yank from multiple police officers. Whoa, 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 I yelled. I was slammed into the ground. Put your hands behind your back, hands behind your back. My face was bashed into the street. My camera went flying. One of the officers put his boot to my neck and handcuffed me. I could hear nothing at this point other than the sound of the arresting officer's police walkie-talkie blaring codes. The police officer walked away. I laid there on the street, on my stomach, in shock. The entire process took about 30 seconds. I never even saw the police officer's faces. I just knew I was in pain and that a mistake had been made. Another officer eventually came and picked me up off the ground and escorted me to the police van. I calmly informed him that I was a member of the press and asked why I had been arrested. He very genuinely, I think, said he didn't know. For the next couple of hours, I was in police custody. I was able to, however, somehow, 
While handcuffed, reach into my pocket, grab my phone, and alert the higher-ups of the network that I had been arrested. Word spread like wildfire that I was detained. It turned out that Fox News had run video of my arrest without realizing I was a journalist, which ended up being what saved me. You see, no one could seem to explain exactly why I'd been thrown to the ground and handcuffed. I wasn't doing anything wrong. I didn't disobey any police officers. I was a journalist on a public street doing my thing, so I was bizarrely charged with resisting arrest. Aside from the Fox News footage, my camera continued to roll. I have ID, I have You could clearly hear me very politely asking a Chicago police officer why I'd been arrested. An unexpected highlight. The camera was in a police officer's hand and still rolling while I was in the police van. When I retrieved the camera later, I played back the footage and heard one officer ask another about the camera. The other replied, it belongs to one of these dickheads. One of these dickheads. Please put that on my tombstone. The footage is what led the CPD to drop the charges a couple days later. I feel certain that if Fox News knew this would happen, they would not have aired my arrest. In a weird moment, I found out the charges were dropped because a reporter from CNN called me to ask for comment. No wonder the network bills itself as the home for breaking news. I was asked recently if I was scared that night. To be perfectly honest, I wasn't. Not because I am the epitome of bravery or anything like that. Simply put, I was baffled. The entire time, whether I was on my stomach with my face looking at concrete or in the police van, I thought repeatedly, this is a huge mistake and someone is going to come along and clear this up any minute now. On top of that, I was focused on my job. I had footage to feed. It didn't hit me how serious and potentially dangerous the situation was. During that first hour after the arrest, I was frustrated to be kept from doing the task I was in Chicago to do. But in the meantime, I was sent to jail. I was let out later that night, and by that point, the story had gone viral. CBS ran multiple stories about the incident. My phone was blowing up with text messages, calls, and emails. Hungry reporters wanted me to comment on being unjustly arrested. Me? I was just hungry. I wanted to go to bed. I called my bosses at CBS to fill them in on what had happened. Then went to the network satellite truck and fed all my footage to the New York headquarters. In the process, I rewatched the incident from the vantage point of my camera. After a precautionary trip to the hospital, I went to my hotel room, flipped my phone to silent, and went to sleep. You might notice a missing sentence in there. Well, I did something stupid. Or rather, I didn't do something. I forgot to tell my family what had happened. I was so tired that it didn't even occur to me. When I got back to my hotel room, I wanted nothing more than for my head to hit the pillow. I didn't want to discuss the incident or relive it. I wasn't traumatized. Many journalists had been through much worse, but it was not something I had ever experienced before. I figured I would get in touch with my folks in the morning. And honestly, the last thing you want to do as a child of brown parents is to call and tell them you've been arrested. I can just imagine it now. Me. Hey, Ma, listen, I'm calling you from jail. I knew it. I knew this would happen. I told you you should have went to grad school. No, Ma, it's not like that. If you could just listen for a second. What did you do? I bet it was all that drinking and drugging. What? No, I was... It was sex, wasn't it? You were arrested for sex. I told you to focus on your studies and not the sex stuff. I can't believe I used my one phone call on this. The next day, I awoke to a phone call from my father in India. I thought it was going to be one of his catch-up phone calls. 
where I'd be in for a few long minutes of awkward conversation about the weather. What happened? My father yelled into the phone. I said, oh, Dad, I am so sorry I didn't tell you. Basically, I was in Chicago, and we were here for a Trump rally, and... Wait a minute. How did you know? You live in India. He said, you're in every newspaper in India. My son is a star! Our car eventually made its way to Shamal's neighborhood, Salt Lake, basically the Brooklyn of Kolkata, and was slowly meandering to the Hyatt, an imposing marvel hidden behind a thick layer of security. My father began offering a few scant details about the life he had lived since moving here. I was extraordinarily careful about my health. It's very important. Sports, music, I practiced piano, accordion, and vocals. There was more. He said he did yoga, and he played golf, plus tennis three times a week without fail. Jogging. Perhaps I haven't told you that I've taken lots of interest in cosmology, he added. Great, I thought. My dad had moved to India and become a hippie. Maybe he'd like the Dave Matthews Band as much as I do. Cosmology, I'm looking forward to hearing about it, I said with a laugh. Would it be too much to ask my father if he would smoke pot with me? Nowadays, I'm busy washing the sky with a binocular and everything, Shamal said, deadly serious. We have a skywash club. We meet every Saturday. You go camping twice a year to go outside and watch the planets. Do you have a lot of friends, I asked. I had a feeling I knew what the answer was going to be. No, he said. He wasn't irked by it. He was matter-of-fact like when he was telling me about the writer, Rabindranath Tagore. To be honest with you, I am my friend, and my accordion, and my piano, my binocular, and my books, my art collections. They are my friends, my father said. But dad, I wanted to say, those are just things. But I don't think he knew the difference. I'm not sure he ever had a friend. I lead a very disciplined life, very careful life. I'm okay. Full of spirit, he said. Full of spirit. On this, he was right. If there's one thing he had, much to my surprise, it was spirit. This level of rejuvenation had been unforeseen on my end. I had spent the last 11 years looking for my own place in the world, and it appeared that Shamal had been looking for his. This story was an excerpt from the book Missed Translations, written and performed by Sopan Deb. The music for this episode was composed by Jordan Holloman. You can find Jordan's music by going to soundcloud.com and searching his name. That's Jordan Holloman, H-O-L-L-O-M-A-N. We would also like to thank Allison at HarperCollins for helping us set this up and Kathleen Conti and Tucker Dalton at CDM Sound Studios in Midtown for engineering this episode, as well as Tim Carplus for the mixing. Storybound is arranged, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of the Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed by Grain Table, and thank you to Modestus Mancus for this outro sample. You want to tell us what you think of the show? Well, you can find us on Twitter at StoryBoundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Next week, we'll get to hear a story from Chloe Caldwell. I wanted to uh, bring something up, and that was through working on this episode, I was I was heartened by... Uh, by Sopan's description of his father. I thought it was um, very sweet, especially how his father would 
raise his voice and almost sound like he was yelling and reminded me of my own father, especially the the length of time in between uh, Sopan and his father seeing one another. Uh, that also mirrored my own my own upbringing. Uh, my father grew up, you know, in between Arkansas and California, eventually settled in Tucson, Arizona, where I had, you know, driven and met him um, when I was 22, about nine years ago. I hadn't seen my dad since I was about seven. And when my parents had separated, you know, they had exchanged letters over a period of, um, you know, several years. And I'm getting to read those letters now. Um, unfortunately, my father, I had learned he had passed away. Um, early on in the month of July, and I just found out about a week ago. We had been in regular communication, actually, for the past eight or nine years since I'd met him. And, um, you know, we were texting and calling back regularly, and I had just spoken to him, and he'd even left me a voicemail uh, the day that he passed away. And uh, that voicemail <laughs> is going to be something that I'm going to have with me for the rest of my life, because... Um, that's just something that I've learned, that the people who play a very important role in your life, uh, you have to find special ways to keep them around for as long as possible. I just wanted to dedicate this episode to my father, and I wanted to thank everybody for listening uh, this far and, and joining us along for the second season, because you know a lot of these episodes, some of them we recorded before the pandemic, many we've recorded during, and, and we're starting to record some others, and and there, there are just so many unpredictable elements out there, um, obviously, namely being the pandemic and uh, some very upsetting um, political issues that are ongoing and have been for quite some time. And um, it just means a lot to us that you tune in at all and you listen to each of these writers' stories. And I really hope that you go out and you look at some of the musicians who've, who've contributed um, to this show. They work really hard. Uh, these are all original compositions, and they're extraordinary, talented musicians, and I, I hope that you, you know, go on and find their work and find something else you know, that, that maybe you've connected with. So, again, thank you so much, and uh, we will see you next week. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.